Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. I don't think any of our listeners love what we're about to ruin. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope not. <laughs> I, I honestly really hope think not. So. Uh, today, we're going to ruin the N-word. Okay, um, let's put it this way. Okay. We're going to ruin what you thought you knew about the N-word. That's correct. Okay, very good. Very good. So uh, this started with a conversation that happened on our Discord channel, which, as you know, uh, our patrons, patreon.com slash sauce podcast, uh, get to come to our Discord channel, The Sauce Speakeasy, and talk about what's on their minds and what they're thinking about. And one of our listeners, we've mentioned him before, Dr. Richard Silvera in New York, uh, had some thoughts about the N-word and in particular the euphemism N-word to describe the word that the N-word is describing. And um, Richard's comments were really, I thought, very interesting, thoughtful, as one would expect from one of our listeners, obviously. Yeah. And we really wanted to take up the topic, but we're like... What, what the hell? We're, we're two white women. Like, we cannot speak to this question. And I noticed that in the conversation that happened out of his frustrations, it was a lot of like well-meaning white people on our <laughs> Discord. Trying, and, and I felt like we weren't, we weren't giving him satisfaction. Yeah, because as well-meaning white people, uh, there's number one, we inevitably are going to not fully understand the entire picture of the situation. We just cannot speak. I cannot speak to how a black person is going to feel about the use of the N-word. Either either the word or the euphemism on it. Or, or the euphemism or any variations of spellings of the word or any context right. of it. But also as well-meaning white people, there's a tendency to be hesitant because you don't want to misstep and say the wrong thing. And so it's difficult. I mean, these conversations are difficult to have under any circumstances with any group of people. But the point being, we recognized that the engagement that perhaps Richard was looking for was not something that we were able to provide there. And we wanted to dive into it on the show. But we, like I said, we're going to we're going to hit a brick wall of like I don't know do you know I don't know do you, what yeah. do you know? I just I, I can't guess speak I to guess it. I could think that maybe I could imagine that yeah that wasn't yeah, going to exactly. work it's not going to so, work so I went on a hunt for like the best expert that we could find <laughs> who could talk to us about it and I found uh the tremendous Dr. Neil Lester from Arizona State, who, in addition to all of his other research and work, he's an English professor, he writes about a lot of stuff, but he has been teaching about and writing about the history of the N-word uh, and teaching a class, unpacking the entire historical, linguistic, cultural, cultural political, yeah. sociopolitical uh, uh weight of that, unpacking that as a class, um, and then writing about that and speaking about that publicly and lecturing about that for like over a decade. So we thought, you know what? Let's talk to him. And amazingly, he agreed to come on I know. and talk to Thank us about you. it. Thank you so much. Yes. So we're just going to play this interview for you, this conversation that we had with Dr. Lester. I don't know if our wonderful listener and patron, Richard Silvera, will find that this 
answers any questions he has. He may continue to disagree, but we're really excited to be able to get into this topic with someone who really has put a lot of work and study. <laughs> a lot of thought. And a lot thought of thought. <laughs> into yes. the topic. Yeah. Rebecca and I are very excited to be here with Dr. Neil Lester. He's an English professor at Arizona State University, and I'm going to have him explain his particular, in addition to all of the other great work he's done, this particular body of expertise. Um, And the reason we reached out to you is because on our Discord channel, one of our longtime listeners, Dr. Richard Silvera, wrote this thing where he said, and I'd like to just read it, During a very intoxicated convo with friends last night, this came up. As a black man, I find the performance around the, quote, N-word, end quote, ridiculous. It's a word. Turning it into Voldemort creates the illusion that racism is only lynching, and it's the thing of a past and now taboo. That's not the racism that is affecting black people right now. It's systemic oppression. But this performance of the making that word taboo both prevents us from talking about it and what it means and the many different ways it's used given that word even more power by making it taboo. Distance is racism as a thing of the past, um, as this thing of the past that we've put behind us. And obfuscates current, in my opinion, more relevant forms of racism. And he says, I find the performance of not uttering the word a bit of an annoyance when it's accompanied by behaviors and propping up of structures that I think now do much more damage than saying that word does. Uh, He says it crops up in academic circles. It's like a conference about cancer, but not saying the word cancer. So, so that's that's what I'm going to drop there. And we're, a bunch of the other people who are on Discord were like trying to have this conversation, but we, we were like, a lot of us are white, we're out of our depth. And um, so we reached out to Dr. Neil Lester, who very graciously agreed to join us. And so if you could tell us uh, your this little field of expertise yeah. that people are reaching out to you for, uh, and then your thoughts. Um, well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me. And I, 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 I did read the response uh, when you sent the invitation out. And my initial response um, is based on having created the first and only course on the N-word in this country. That was not a course to teach people how to say it, but rather to, <laughs> but rather, but rather to better understand why at the time in 2008, uh, then Senator Obama was running for president, that word was sort of um, baptizing him. And I wanted to know, I thought we had sort of passed that naively. Uh, and in, in studying it, I came to better understand it and also to be more equipped to make my own critical decision about what I wanted to use coming out of my mouth. So my conversations about the N-word, my publishing, my lecturing, my workshops have not been to tell people what they can and can't say. What I distinguish at the beginning is there's nothing criminal about the word itself. It's the context of that word. There may be social consequences, or if you scribble it on my car and I go out to it because it's been keyed in there, that's criminal activity. What I always say, though, is that the word, no matter how it's spelled, is a signifier of other things. So in that case, I do agree with the doctor's assessment at the end. What I don't agree with is this notion that somehow it gives it more power by not saying it. Mm. So one thing I do want to just mention for our listeners is that Dr. Lester has developed this course, which is almost like 
a literary anthropological dive into this word. He's taught it four times. He's being prepared to teach it a fifth. Uh, He's written about the pedagogy of teaching a course like this. Um, And as he's saying, that paper which he wrote a few years ago, is being downloaded (laughs) all the time. People are like, help me, help me. How do I deal with this word? All over the planet. All over the planet. Because there's a dashboard that says, you know, here's the country, here's how many times, this is the organization. So the the need, uh, interest is real. Uh, what's what's also interesting is the way in which my own thinking about it has evolved since I actually wrote that. And part of that is, I avoid actually typing it out when I'm actually writing about it now because I don't see the need for that. Um, And so that for me is very different and that is a performance also, but it's a performance that for me is critically worth engaging in because there are ways in which we don't have to say something in order to know what it means. And there are lots and lots of examples of that, that we could, you know, that we could use, but it really is about performance and what I am choosing critically to do. In fact, the, the title of, of the talk that I give, lots and lots of places, just did it at the University of Lynchburg two weeks ago. It's called Straight Talk About the N-Word. And when I first started that, I remember years ago, someone uh, uh, messaging me on Facebook and said, well, if it's such straight talk, why are you not using the word? And I said, because I'm choosing not to use the word. I said, I don't have to use it in order for you to know what it is. I don't have to say the name of that NFL football team in Washington for you to know exactly which football team in Washington that had an indigenous mascot that is problematic. I don't have to say that. What that means is that I'm trying to engage in some intellectual and critical agency so that I'm not controlled by what somebody else is trying to manipulate me to say. So I don't think that uh, I can speak on behalf of our listener, Richard Silvero, but the impression I got from his comment was um, that he's concerned about where what you're just talking about becomes uh, well, of course, it's performance, but where it becomes so performative that it's problematic in itself. Do you see there being a use of the euphemisms, uh, the avoidance of the word that could be working across purposes, the purpose being anti-racism? Is there a way that using a euphemism in your mind can um, substitute performativity for real anti-racism, for example? No, I do not. And part of that is because I don't think there's another word in the English language, and I'm not alone in this, that bears the same history that is both present and past. That is a word that is a a universal, shall we say, and I I don't use that word uh, loosely, uh, epithet. Uh, It can be used for uh, any age, Uh, it can be used for any race, Uh, it can be used for behavior or not behavior, it is about identity. So this notion of making it more uh, or giving it more taboo is, is unrealistic Um, It's actually nonsensical to me because there's no other word, as many have said in the English language, that conjures up all the contempt and the pity against a group of people. So for me, we don't need to say it because it has a visceral, it can create a visceral response to those who hear it, no matter what the context is. And so what I'm saying is, particularly in the case of a classroom that we were talking about earlier, Maya, if a teacher comes in and says that word, even if they're reading it from a Kendrick Lamar, you know, lyric 
or you know Huckleberry Finn, then you have essentially taken the risk of assaulting someone in that class who doesn't want to hear it. And I could be one of those. They don't have to look like me or you in order to have problems with that word. And I'm not saying that everybody does. Clearly, everybody doesn't. I don't want the doctor in my presence using that word because words have power. And that is the power over which he has no control. And I am not interested in what his intention is. I know what the impact is on me. And it's not because I've not heard it. It's not because you're calling me. It's because I know the history of that word that is both present and past. It's, it's interesting because there's something about the formulation of the euphemism, which I want to take a second to talk yeah. about. Mm-hmm. The formulation of the euphemism, which has its own stuff linked to it. Because there's a part of the formulation of it, and I totally get this, which feels childish. It's like what children say, the the S word, the F word, the like, it's the it's a thing that kids use to say the word that they don't really want to say or to say, oh, yeah, he said the F word. And, and there's part of that, which I understand, I feel like I get why that would be very irritating. What I wrote to him is that I said that as childish as it is, it acknowledges the obscenity of that word. <laughs> like, like it acknowledges the word as obscene. And it is frustrating that we live in a country where we have to like use these kind of childish, it's like we're training children how to manage the word. Like there's part of that, which I understand the, 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 the things that the euphemism carries with it that are so like, Oh, God. Well, but the, but the reasons for that seem very different to me. And I actually don't see it as childish. Mm. Uh, in fact, I would argue that racism and any of those forms of discrimination that we still carry within us as adults could also be called childish. The fact that you look at yeah. someone and determine what that person's reality and your response to that person is childish. But I, I don't even want to call it childish because calling something childish feeds into childism and the ways in which we relegate something that is child to being negative and lower that each of us was a child, has been a child, and still has some of that child in us in terms of who well, we are. And also anybody who has children, as I have too, uh, the access to knowledge yes. that they have yeah. is yes, I love that you I love that you said that. <laughs> well, I don't personally subscribe to the hierarchy of that because the realities that we deal with is that children face these same kind in fact children are absorbing these biases from the adults and from the world around us. So there's a whole lot that we underestimate when we start talking about this as being childish or something that children would do. So in that sense, you know, children have been involved in these conversations about the N-word. All you have to do is go to those little children's books that, that um, you know, whether it's Little Black Sambo, which doesn't use the N-word, but it certainly uses those menstrual images that are part of that whole sort of tapestry of the N-word. So euphemizing something for me is, is, is not even about respectability politics, as I started off saying, this is about what I am choosing to say. In the same way that, you know, Maya Angelou says that words are power and there should be some way that we can measure them. And if you're not careful, the words that you use and the words that you allow to be used around you can become you. And I don't want that word to become me in any sort of way, creatively or intellectually. And here's one thing. So you wrote about the absence of that word in children's literature. Yes. So if you could just take a moment to talk about that, I would love that. What I regret about that is that I didn't name it in the title 
to this day, I regret that I did not, and I don't mean spell it out, but I didn't even allude to it. I call it something, you know, namby-pamby, like airbrushing the ugly of ugly. And here's the, <laughs> I wish that I had, I wish that I put either the N-word in it because I have evolved in my thinking too. So here's, here's what the deal was. I, I did my, my uh, dissertation on Intozaki Shange and for colored girls, which by the way, I'm taking students to see this coming weekend before they close it uh, <laughs> early. Um, and, um, and we also hosted Camille Brown here, who is the choreographer director. So there are all these wonderful connections. So I have everything that I think that I know about language and about um, theater and interdisciplinarity and emotion and poetry and all that stuff, I learned from Intizaki Shange, both from her writings, from the interviews that she gave me access to. So when I stumbled upon this book called Whitewash, a picture book that she had written that was based on a real event, I wanna say in 1993 in Brooklyn, New York, where a young black boy high school boy and his and his little sister were walking home from school and they were essentially um, beat up by a gang of white boys who spray painted them white and then baptized them in the n-word so I was curious about that because that was what it was based on now teaching tolerance which is now learning for justice of the Southern Poverty Law Center had actually created an animated teaching tool for that Okay, and it uses the word. It's an animation. It uses the word. Ruby D is in it, and I don't know who else. I, um, the person who was Rhoda, Valerie, that person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I thought really good. Then when I saw Shange writing a picture book form of it, I thought, hmm, she doesn't use the N word. What she has is the little girls say, and they called us mud people. And that's when I was like, hmm. That doesn't feel like it. First of all, I've never heard of mud people. I've never heard of anybody calling anybody mud people. And it doesn't have that same kind of impact when you say, because that first of all, that, that's not what happened. So it, it forced me to sort of look at the ways in which journalists and those who write the stories have to make a decision based on whatever their ethical policies are. And I admit that when somebody uses, um, you know, the sort of even vaguer epithet, like they were beat up and called an epithet, that to me runs the range, the gamut of what that could have been. But if you had said, for example, and they called us the N-word, that wouldn't have the same impact because it's not exactly trying to recreate a historical moment. And I see historical moments as not just, you know, what uh, Frederick Douglass writes about or Harriet Jacobs, but the, the actual event of that space. So in that case, I was kind of disappointed. And I then started looking at other books that left it out unless they were trying to talk about the civil rights movement or something that was historical where you saw it on a placard. So I didn't try to resolve that so much as try to understand when and how that might be appropriate. But I, you know, in the same context, I had seen these little books that had 10 little inward boys and 10 little inward girls. And it was not just about the naming of them, the menstrual image presentation of them, but they were also dying one by one, often very violently. So all of that sort of wrapped into how I started to think about this in terms of what I personally wanted to do. And certainly I can tell you as a person teaching that class, we have ground rules. So nobody is going to use it in the class. When I do presentations, I ask if we're gonna make a comment, we are not gonna use it because it is a violent word. 
And that cannot be denied historically or in the present. And I think that's why I'm choosing to euphemize it in the same way that I euphemize other words. There's nothing childish about that. And that was a long-winded response to your question. But a great no, response. It's it a great good. response. So here's my thinking. Um, you've sure. spoken a lot about um, this choice, yes. making a deliberate choice not to use it, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that for a lot of white people, they don't feel like they have a choice. That it's not uh, a matter of carefully assessing the impact of the word right. and the impact on the listener. It's the consequences to them as a speaker if yeah. they say it aloud. And um, I'm wondering if you have any insight as to how that came to be. That, I suspect, I always had the impression came about from a deliberate sort of campaign. Is that the case? Well, I, I don't know if it's a deliberate campaign so much as, as I, as I said to Maya as we opened this, uh, um, I, I don't think that anybody's confused about the use of the word. Yeah. Tim Weiss said something like, oh, you know, there's a double standard. Some white people perceive this as a double standard. And he just misses and said, well, so is American history. That's a double standard. So what? Get over it. You know, in terms of the black and white, you know, black people can say it, white people can't. There really isn't this sense that black people have universally agreed that it's an okay word to say among ourselves. Look at what the NAACP did to try to bury it in this mock funeral, or look at the campaigns not to say it, or there were, you know, there are, are people who make films who decided that they're not going to use it, that it doesn't add anything else to it. But then you've got this confusion coming from folks like Chris Rock, who is trying to distinguish that word from black folks. And all he's doing is, is perpetuating the internalized racism. That's he also says he of, would never, he also says yeah, he would never do that bit now. <laughs> well, I would hope not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The fact is that he did it though. It, the fact yeah. is that he did it. And it also and he, perpetuated racism among white people as well. Absolutely. A lot of white well, people took that as permission. Well, but I don't know that white people need permission. To fair, point, fair point, fair <laughs> point. Oh, I don't want to I don't want to give him that much power. And that's what I say about the other thing about white people. You know, white people have to examine their own relationship to race and decide the extent to which this word is a signifier of what they think, how they feel and how they behave. And, and you said that white people tend not to use it. But, you know, the, the, the what I see in terms of classroom pedagogy is that white people are using it and justifying its use and white people are singing it and justifying their use because it's in the song. That right. to me is a different kind of conversation than black people using it among themselves. I still think that it's a conversation that people need to examine critically, but I also recognize that it also sells. It's a, it, Jay-Z is not gonna stop using it because the people who are buying his music want it in there because it gives them permission to sing it and to say it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite convinced that, um, you know, maybe more conscious white people, you know, but, but let's add also this to the second part of the doctor's conversation. You know, we, we're talking now in our anti-racist uh, language and pedagogy, things about bias. And what I recognize is that you don't have to burn down, you know, burn a cross on somebody's yard. You don't have to say the N-word. What you can do is talk about how articulate someone is. Are you ask my six, five son, you know, does he play basketball? So there are ways in which the word is a signifier of other stuff. When Dr. Laura said it years and years and years ago, it wasn't just when she was talking to the black woman on her show when she was spewing and she literally was spewing as though it was some sort of cathartic thing to the black woman. The black woman was using the N-word 
And Dr. Laura was saying other stuff that was equally problematic, telling this black woman who was in an interracial marriage, oh, well, you shouldn't have married out of your race. So the same thing with Paula Dean. That is a signifier. Mm. The same thing with, with Joe Rogan. Well, I was about to bring up Joe Rogan because there's this way where, in particular, white male comedians, it's like that line of taboo makes them cuckoo for Cocoa Like there's something about that where, because Rebecca and I have done a lot of episodes over the past few years about like free speech, this kind of fantasy of free speech and And that seems to be like the place where people get these white comedians, uh, white male comedians get so angry. It's it's amazing. Part of that though is because, and and I'm going to say this because I'm reflecting on the past two years and mask wearing during the lockdown. Black people, other marginalized groups, women, have always been told where we could go and what we could do. And we have navigated our lives around that, whether it was sundown towns or Jim Crow laws or places that told you you couldn't go to school and learn to read and write. White men have not had to constrain themselves because they have defined the rules. And so now to somehow say that this is something you can't say becomes this this defiant. Look look at how critical race theory, this this anti-critical race theory started with three white men. And Audre Lorde tells us that that's the heart of all of these isms here and everybody else is othered. So I'm not surprised. But, you know, what, what's really disappointing, though, is that other piece of, of social media footage that's circulating with Chris Rock giving permission to Louis C.K. and others to use the word. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then Jerry Seinfeld fortunately saying, well, that's not a word I am looking for any humor in and I'm never going to use it. That to me shows that we don't necessarily lump everybody in there. But Louis C.K., George Carl- Car- uh, Carlin, all those folks have somehow, and oh my gosh, don't get me started on Quentin Tarantino, where Jamie Foxx has given him the pass too. I, I'm just thinking about uh, one of the things I posted on our conversation on the Discord was the Richard Pryor yes. thing about not using it anymore, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. is our wretchedness. And after that had been, that had been the way that he framed yep. himself. Right. And then he was like, "I'm done. I'm right. done." And there is a cyclical nature to the conversation. Well, keep in mind also, um, Paul Mooney had a quick moment where he said he was not going to use it also. But but it is it is something that is, um, it's a certain kind of capital. Uh, but again, I look at who the audience is. And we also have to look at this, or at least I have to look at this through the lens of Du Bois's double consciousness and the ways in which Black people have and other communities of color have internalized anti-blackness and uh, white supremacy. Um, It is not coincidental that we have colorism that persists in this country as well as in other parts of the world where blackness is perceived as a negative on so many levels and it's also intersects with caste in other countries as well. So for me it's not surprising that we would have uh, those who are enslaved, if you read Frederick Douglass, sitting around talking about who has the best master. The, 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 the pathetic nature of that is that they didn't own themselves and didn't that someone owned them and they didn't have their own agency and autonomy. So I guess I'm not as confused about Black people using it among Black people because there are lots of things that we're trying to do 
to, to unlearn white supremacy that we have digested and ingested. So I'm inclined to contrast it with the use of the word queer, which is a, a good example, probably the only example I could think of, of a marginalized group successfully, rather successfully reclaiming a term. Does that not apply here just because of the relative power of the words, or is there something else going on? Well, first of all, I don't align those histories. Okay. Uh, queer, queer is about an identity that has a certain behavior and a certain kind of performance that's associated with it. If you're a baby and someone calls you that or slaps you on a plane, as was done, that has nothing to do with what you've done. It has to do with who you are and what you look like. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're, you're, what you're doing to color outside the lines to define your queerness, but I, I don't think there are any books out there about queer babies. Uh, I don't know that there are any sorts of histories. That's why I try to say this word is like no other word in the English language. So it is not like the B word. It is not like the F word. It is not like any of those. And I dare say it's not like the queer word. It, it, is, it, is not, it has not had the same place that, and I don't want to get into um, sort of oppression gymnastics, but, but there's a way in which the history of that um, has a certain identity that's associated with it in ways that the N-word has a more universal identity. And what I say about that is if you and I are best friends, you could easily be an N-word lover. There are ways in which we have white N-words, we have sand N-words. It can be used as an adjective, it can be used as an adverb, it can be used as a noun. If you do something that's really silly and you're putting something together with duct tape, you might be called N-word rigging. That has not been characteristic of the other words that people say, well, what about this? And I am certainly not saying that there are not instances where people can take something back and make it your own. But, but, but if this is nothing that you owned, and I go back to the history of this word as I understand it, uh, this was not a word that Black people created for themselves, despite what Kendrick Lamar says about NEGUS and despite the nonsense you know, acronym that Tupac has given it that probably two people on the planet remember. And I know that that's not how it's used when people are upset with each other, Black people. What I do recognize, however, is the way in which that word in that first encounter in the 1500s became a descriptor that was actually quite neutral. But descriptors are rarely neutral. Differences about the ways in which we other folks. So even if we describe Africans, the Europeans who were Spanish and the Portuguese encountering Africans and describe them as Negro, by 1619, that description was clearly negative as unattractive, uneducable, uncivilized, and all those things that we associate. And it's not just about the people, but it's also about the ways in which language has been colonized. So if we talk about Black listening, Black ball, Black market, Black magic, that cannot be said with the word and the identities that you just identified. And so that's what I said. This is something that is unlike any other word in the English language. That is not saying there are no other epithets that bother folks and that you can't take it back. Michael Jackson did it with fat and bad. And so it's, that's a whole nother sort of gymnastic exercise, but I don't personally equate it with queer taking it back because of that long and problematic history. I have a question about uh, one one place where I would love to bring this to you is the classes that you teach on it and some of the some of the things you've learned from teaching it as a class. I know for myself as a teacher, 
I, I often learn as much uh, no. just through the process of teaching <laughs> well, as I, I do. That's for, why I, I mean, teach is because I teach right. because I learn and I teach that's courses it. because I want to learn something about it. I don't teach a course because I know the answers. I don't also right. don't write a paper if I know the answer to it. I write a paper because I want to learn about it and it forces me to do it in a kind of more structured way. Um, I think the, the most one of the most interesting things that I learned is that you have to have ground rules and that people have to agree to the ground rules because it's very easy to take something that we do in a class, take it out of the class and then have it subverted in some way. That I can't control, but I can at least establish ground rules for it. And whether it's whether I'm teaching a class or doing you know, a virtual workshop on the N-word, we say, we're not gonna point it out in the, we're not gonna spell it out in the chat. We're not gonna say it in our comments. What you choose outside of the space of our time together is up to you. But I am asking in the same way that I would ask that there not be any name calling. I think the, the thing that I most remember is a uh, Puerto Rican student who after the first couple of days in the class said that, um, some of his friends called him that word and he had never really understood why it bothered him until he took the class and he he somehow had the language and the confidence to ask them to stop because mm. they thought that it was an endearing word and there were no white people in that space but there was something about it that made him uncomfortable and he didn't need my class to know that he was uncomfortable what he got from the class according to him was the language and an understanding of why it made him uncomfortable. Mm. So I, I think in you know, mm. each audience, whether it's an in-class audience or an audience of folks in a community or, or other presentation, I'm always amazed at, at how people wanna debate. There's this, this sort of gendered way in which black men wanna hold on to that. And that's, um, that's an interesting conversation that I hope that I can tease out in this next iteration of the class, because I see it as a kind of performance when um, Black women have not embraced it in the same way. It is not that same kind of performance uh, that has its own choreography. What's up, my, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and there's a whole sort of physical choreography that goes with it. But I can also see that in a world, excuse me, where Black men feel like um, there is no power that you feel like you can hold on to that. But I, I you know, in, in the, in the, in many of the, the hip hop songs that people bring in, the N word is right there with sexism and misogyny. If people look at it, they're companions. And I just caution this sort of notion of grappling onto something. And if, if this is your brother and if it's your homie, then what's wrong with using that? What's wrong have with you, using that? Have you, uh, has your, has your son had opinions about it? No. Um, <laughs> our, our, our daughter, um, who is a social justice um, practitioner. Um, well, here, here's, here's, here, here's the weird thing about this. When I was teaching Dick Gregory's uh, autobiography, I hadn't had the talk with my students because here I with my children because here I was teaching it and recognizing that I hadn't had a conversation with them and wondered if I needed to have a conversation and in that article that you read I remembered sitting on the balcony here and having some middle school students walking down and using that word among themselves it just occurred to me that my kids could be subjected to that because they went to these same schools 
So I kind of put it around and hoping that they would say something to me, kind of like, you know, we're not going to have a talk about sex. If you, if you have a question, come to me. And I realized that wasn't working. <laughs> that wasn't working. Um, my, our, our son seems more aware of race stuff now since George Floyd's murder, because he has been multiple times pulled over and asked about the car he was driving. He's six uh, he's six, three, six, five. Um, and then he's been, been frisked, uh, when he went into a store and was told that they thought that he was trying to steal beer. They came out and recognized that it wasn't. So he's had his own issues with, with race. The N word has not been part of that. Uh, my daughter has been more critical in asking me to rethink my positions because it may be more flexible, uh, than I have given, um, voice to, but it really hasn't. She doesn't use it. But in the same way that my kids don't use, my adult kids don't use cuss words around me. I just ask them, don't use it. Mm -hmm. I don't use it around you. Don't use it around me. So there's been no sort of aha moment that I've had with my own kids. What I recognize is that um, how they are treated may or may not involve the N-word if they are treated badly or poorly because of what they look like and who they are, then that as, is as problematic as that word. Well, that leads me to another question about the word being representative, being symbolic of a much mm -hmm. deeper, larger issue of yes. um, white supremacy, anti-Blackness. Um, yes. So does eliminating the word or making the word taboo at least, uh, it, it doesn't really accomplish anything in the bigger fight for of anti-racism is there a danger there that um not that it would make matters worse per se well and i think that that there is a way that like being safe and using the right euphemism as a replacement for the work that that you have to keep doing the work you can't just like i i use the right word i'm done right but that's very different than um, this notion of trying to trying to soften it for somebody else, because right. even in the example that you use, that was trying to soften it for a child. When you're going to talk about a PP, are you going to talk about <laughs> this? Are you going to? Right. Right. What I'm saying is, how am I controlling what's coming out of my mouth? Those are two mm -hmm. different things that I'm seeing here. I am not softening this for someone else. What I am saying is, I'm not going to have it come out of my mouth. That's all I'm saying. And I'm just asking people to think about that. And not just in terms of the N-word, but any of those other words that are disparaging. On TikTok, there are several popular figures there and, and to do a lot of mouthing, you know, lip syncing to songs. One was Megan Thee Stallion. Actually, it's not Megan Thee Stallion, it's a uh, lotto. And it's the big, the big energy. And there's this white guy on there and he says all the words up till he gets to the N-word and then he kind of moves out. And then there's another one where another white guy is singing a song with the N-word and there's a black friend standing in the back. And when it gets to the N-word, he doesn't say it. Now, what bothers me about the first one is that he's also saying the B-word and he's saying the other word. So for me, this is not a conversation just about the N-word. It's a conversation about language that disparages. And I'm not going to go into a space talking about if women can take the B-word because that's certainly been appropriated by gay men, you know, but that's a conversation but that's also based on a behavior. It's often on a gender. Um, I have rarely seen any books called the 10 Little B Words and, and, and having it reflect the same kind of history that we see with 
black people and the n-word you know there there are two instances because i look at news things too because i do pop culture and literature and cultural studies but there are two instances where one was 11 year old boy he was at a bumper car amusement park on this bumper car ride and he a car came behind him as they were stopping to get out and his car bumped into a grown white woman's car she got out of her car called him the n-word and slapped him he was 11 years old oh my God. then another instance so that word is still associated with violence there's another instance of a a white woman with her, um, and it is important in this instance, her adopted black child were on a plane. They were about to land in Atlanta. The little infant started to cry because of the pressures that was descending. There was a white man in front of her. As the child started to cry, he reached back and said, shut that little N-word up and then slap that infant child. So please, please, when people start saying the word is disconnected from violence, and these, this is not back in the 20s or the 30s, this is in our lifetime, there is still violence that is, it, that is intricately connected to that word, whether it was yesterday in Buffalo or back in the days in 1619. And for me, 30 years of hip hop can't take that back and I am just choosing, I'm not trying to soften it for anybody. What I'm saying is I'm controlling, I'm not gonna say that anymore. Just like I'm not gonna use that, I'm not even gonna call it the R word. I'm gonna say NFL team over there. It takes some critical energy to do that, but that shows me that I have some agency. I am choosing to do that and inviting you to consider the words that come out of your mouth. That's what I'm saying. And I, I mentioned that earlier about Maya Angelou when she had that, that famous thing with Oprah, because Oprah said, you know, I've seen her stop people in their tracks at a party when they're saying something that was racist or homophobic. And she says something like words are things I'm convinced you must be careful about the words you use or the words that you allow to be used in your house. She says words are things you must be careful, careful about calling people out of their names, using racial pejoratives or sexual pejoratives and all that ignorance. Don't do it. Someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. I think they are things. I I think they get on the walls, they get in your wallpaper, they get in your rugs and your upholstery and your clothes and finally into you. I don't want that word into me. So I am oh consciously God. fighting against <laughs> that. That's what that's my Angelou. That's <laughs> what this is about. That's what this is about. This is yeah. not trying to convince other people what to say. I do hope though that people will think about it. So if the doctor wants to use it, I don't want him using it in my presence. And if he decides that he wants to use it, I will exit the present, the 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 place or ask him or 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 ask him not to use it. Right. That's all I'm saying. This is not about softening it for anybody. So he's thinking of this as an audience to other folks. I'm not thinking about this. I'm looking at myself as the audience and what is coming out of my mouth. But I also feel like that idea of critical energy of saying like that that people using that euphemism does force them into that space of critical energy. And that's kind of great. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, just that anything that makes you have to stop and think about yes. the word you're about to use. And yes. right. How, but, that's yeah. right. But it's that's not right. different from stereotypes, though. Let's right. let's because and 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 you know and 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 AI if we want to go into coded bias that's based on stuff in the past we know that that has to do with with certain ways in which we determine whether or not we were safe or whether we had a friend or a foe and I don't know that we have to, I know that we have time to stop and think what comes out but it's it's sort of like the bias bias comes in when you don't have to think about anything. Right, right. It just automatically happens. If I say Cinderella and the image of Disney Cinderella's comes in mind, you too have been 
sucked in to thinking that Cinderella only looks one way, that she can't well, brand. But that's right. something that we were just talking about, uh, uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Yes. Um, and the ways that that I find a lot of the engagement of like, they, them, call yes. me a different gender, yes. expand the binary. I'm sorry, that's hard for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of, I think, older feminists who are like, I had to fight this. And they seem a little resentful at the younger generation for being like, well, what if I say those rules don't apply to me? Yeah. And then, yeah. and that, and that it's like, well, but you are still performing or presenting <laughs> as a female. How dare you make me think about this? It's like, exactly. well, yeah, that's kind that's of the what point. I'm saying. And I'm saying that too as an English teacher, as an English teacher who has also digested all these sort of racially problematic, systemic ways of being in the world. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is that those pronouns are not agreeing. And and I'm thinking that's exactly right. Those pronouns are not agreeing. And we should be respectful of that. Just and having then, then, to let Fowler go. It's like, that's it. <laughs> <doesn't get laughs> and, and, and can you imagine where we could be? And we have to imagine a world where the beauty is when we have disrupted that ignorance, where the beauty, as Angela Davis says, is liberation from these rules that have shackled us and continue to shackle us psychologically, mentally, and otherwise. That to me is liberation. And that to me is beauty. And I'm only trying to do a little bit of that. So if I wake up and a student's like, wow, or somebody said, wow, I never thought about it like that, that to me is excitement. And then when I leave a room say, wow, I've never quite thought about it like that. Thank you. That to me is beauty. And that's why I'm doing it. So the doctor can go on and say it. Just please don't say it in my place. No, I don't, I don't think it's so much about so. his insistence about using it. I think it's what he finds as this, this sort of like leaning on the euphemism in 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 the absence of doing the work. Oh, good. And I feel like, I feel like, you know, like, like. Trust me, I, I'm doing the work. Doing no, I know the, you're but, doing the work. I know you're doing the work. Right. He's not talking about you. No. He's not talking about you. Well, and I'm also not out there trying to project on the work that people are doing, because I don't want to get into sort of measuring sticks about who's doing the work, because, you know, we can have a gymnastics contest about that and figure out who's doing the judging. What I can say is in the work that I'm doing, I'm inviting people to think critically. And it's okay to pause and not say it. You know, I, I asked again, what, what have you been deprived of by not saying it versus what have you been able to accomplish in the space of a classroom when you didn't say it? And that one black student did not have to crawl under the desk because she or they uh, were um, embarrassed and traumatized by the power of an educator saying the word, even though they're reading it from a text. That's what I'm saying. And it really isn't about academic freedom uh, or it's just as much about uh, the, the student's right to learn as it is. And anybody in my audience should not yes. be disrupted. I mean, here's what happened. And I'll, I'll say this as the final thing in my presentation at the University of Lynchburg, which has its own kind of uh, space. Um, it was the first time that I'd done it as an in-person since the lockdown and, or since mm -hmm. we were sort of out of the pandemic and I'm using out loosely. Um, but the people were stunned. It was an audience of about 30 people, three presented as black and the others not. And, and I'd never had an audience just say nothing when it was over. And I had to sort of reflect on what that meant. And then I paused and said, so what's happening? Did, is there, are there questions? And, and one of the persons said, this is so 
awful that I had no idea it was so prevalent. Hmm. And what I have to recognize is I have to do what I do and then let people sit in their responses to it. But I never said it, but there are all kinds of ugly images there. And so now what I've decided to do for each of these presentations is I have an audience advisory saying, this is gonna be unpleasant for folks. This is ugly. It's a conversation about language, but it also has images there. So do what you have to do to feel your comfort. Because in the past, I just go in and, you know, bolt through it. <laughs> and I saw the response of those folks. And that's where, you know, people have helped me sort of see um, how that would at least remind people that there are some unpleasant stuff here. Even though you come to a talk about the N-word, I will not be saying it, but I play it. Well, but it's also what's interesting about that, and I think Rebecca and I have talked a lot about this in terms of critical race theory and this fear of history, Yeah, is that sometimes you do have to just sit in it. You just and this yeah. resistance to this resistance to like, I don't want like that resistance is what we're encountering right now. I don't want to see it. I don't want to face it. I don't want to face what my complicity is in it. I don't yeah. want to have anything to do with it. I'm going to just like, la, 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 la. But those are like, people who've never been faced with having to do that. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> Historic, that's, that's correct. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's the privilege part because they can yes. choose. And in fact, the, the next part of that advisory says, and if it bothers you to, to hear or to see this, Imagine the people who have no choice except to walk through this right. in their daily lives. And that's what I keep saying. I think the George Floyd's murder has uh, impressed upon me a certain kind of urgency that I never had before. Um, and, and this sort of continual resistance against this notion that all lives matter. All lives have never mattered. They still don't matter. If you're mm. poor, if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're anything other that Audre Lorde talks about, then your life doesn't matter either. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of urgency. I think the class is, is eye-opening. I wouldn't do it again if I didn't think there was demand for it. I get calls every other day about something or an email about something. So there's still this need to understand and some a need to justify. And, and this is legally too, because I've served as a, an, an expert witness for some lawsuits around the N-word. The most recent one was in Iowa with some uh, Latinx men calling, using that word um, with, with its only Black person in that working space. Oh, wow. But let me just say, it's not just the word. They were also showing him interracial pornography and groping him. So do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. The word is never disconnected from all the other stuff that comes around it. So that's what I say when you mention the queer word or right. the B word or this word or that word. This word is unlike any in the English language. And I've even looked at this internationally to say if there's not this word and sometimes it's used, there's another word that's like it that signals the same thing. Mm. All right. Well, All right. thank you so, so much for your time, yeah. for your insight, for your patience. <laughs> we are so, uh, we so appreciate it. And, and we're excited to see what you do next. I'm yeah. glad we were able to work out. And again, I do lots of other topics. So I love engaging with the two of no, you. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, okay. So <laughs> let me tell you, hey, so if you ever have something like that, okay. if you're like, you know what, I could really ruin this TV show right okay. now. 
we are we are here for it we're right here for it and one of the things we've actually been doing just to also throw this at you is we've been asking our listeners uh to do problematic faves so Mm -hmm. like to share with us their their share with us their faves that that are problematic problematic, that they know are problematic because i think our thesis is that you can't unlink the pleasure from the things that are problematic. So that's part of what we're going into is we go deep into the pleasure that it gives us and then also the ways that that reveals something about us. So I feel like if you have a problematic fave and you want to bring that, we, we are very just overjoyed we'd be overjoyed <laughs> well let me, let me think about that and let me <laughs> let me see what you do with this one and then we'll decide exactly how we'll go forward okay fantastic right. thank you so much dr lester well that was fucking awesome yeah <laughs> that was really great really um good. we have to have dr lester on again because there's so many topics that he's expert in. Yeah, yeah, and and I'd also like to see him just ruin something, just yeah. for the pleasure of oh. ruining it. <laughs> you know, you look at the list. I'm just looking at like his ASU biography, yeah. and it's like talks about all of his topics that he's published on and studied, and it's like black masculinities, African American homoeroticism, neo slave narratives. Parental, in parentheses, ill, literacy in children's literature. Yeah. African-American female sexuality. Interracial intimacies in American popular music. African-American womanist theory. Yeah. Disney's first African-American princess in The Princess and the Frog. Maybe we can get him to ruin The Princess and the Frog. Oh. But like, it go, uh, the list goes on and every single yeah. thing on it, I'm like, yes. Ooh. Oh, I would <laughs> love to. Can we, can we do that? Can we talk about that? It's just really rich areas of study and expertise. So uh, I hope that we have given you some satisfaction, Richard. And I can't wait to hear what you think. And I can't wait to hear what all of you guys think. Yes. Uh, Please (laughs) write to us. Email us, saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us. Find us on the Instagram. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash saucepodcast, so you can come onto the sauce speakeasy. Um, And let's keep having this conversation. We are Sauce Podcast on all the social medias. You can find me, Rebecca, as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. You can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you are looking for Maya Garantz's. And we would love to hear your thoughts about this, other topics that you'd love to hear us talk about on the show, your problematic faves that you'd like us to ruin, all that bring stuff. It. Bring it. Do Bring it. Do reach out. And also know that when you bring something up, we will make a whole episode about it <laughs> for you. For you. <laughs> for everyone. Well, but for everybody. It's true. A lot of our best topics come from our listeners. So Always. don't hesitate Always. to reach out. Adios, amoebas. Adios.